If you're joining us today, uh, you've joined us for, uh, I think it's about week four or five with this series that we're uh, doing on Genesis in the beginning. We're looking at our origin story, the origin story of, of the whole world. And it's a bit heavy today. Today we're looking at the problem of evil, the origin of evil. But this is something that everyone has had to grapple with. Every society, every worldview has to grapple with this question of, of the, the problem of evil. It doesn't matter whether you're an atheist or agnostic or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist. You've got to grapple with this question of, of what's wrong with the world? What's gone wrong? And actually, we spend as a society billions of dollars every year on trying to tackle the problem of evil, whether it's through our judges and lawyers and, and courts and police, whether it's through our academia and medicine and the political process is, is trying to motivate people. How do you motivate people to, to do the right thing, to, to stop kind of hating and discriminating and, and to love and to support each other? We spend billions of dollars on this as a society every year. And, and that's what we're, we're looking at this morning is this problem of the origin of evil. Um, there's uh, this um, woman called Beatrice Webb who's was one of the architects of the social welfare system in the United Kingdom in the early 20th century. Her and her husband, Sidney, were known as the kind of founders of the social welfare system. And uh, she was part of the intelligentsia and the elite of the day. And she wrote this essay where she says this. She says, somewhere in my diary, um, 1890 perhaps, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. But now, 35 years later, I realise how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in people and how little we can change these. For example, the greed for wealth and for power. How can we shift social institutions from the basis of brutal struggle for existence and power and onto the basis of fellowship? Then she says this, No amount of knowledge or science will be able to avail unless we can curb these evil impulses and set ourselves free for good. What she's saying is that after 35 years of doing good, after 35 years of humanitarian work, she came to the conclusion that we're ultimately powerless against the evil that resides within the human heart. This was as a secular humanitarian, the the architect of the social welfare system in the United Kingdom. Uh, Here's another guy who was was a British uh, philosopher and historian called David Cecil. And after the Holocaust, the horrors of of World War, you know, leading up to that, there was such optimism about... um, a technology and our, our capacity as as humans, and then after the Holocaust, David Cecil, this this historian philosopher, he says the philosophy of progress had led us to believe that the savage and the primitive was behind us, but it turns out it was within us. Do you catch that optimism that we have even today, that, that we're moving into the 21st century, that we've got to get onto the right side of history, that there's this optimism about the future? It's been interesting uh, in the recent weeks looking into artificial intelligence, and I've been watching some uh, lectures and, and things, and it's been amazing that some of the architects of artificial intelligence have been um, grappling with, with the massive potential for good, but also the massive potential for absolute catastrophe through the power of artificial intelligence. Has anyone picked up 
on that conversation. It's this grappling with our potential for evil and the corruption of the human heart. The, the point I'm trying to make is that, that this problem of evil is something that everyone has to grapple with. Societies are grappling with it, whether it's through education, through medicine, through science and technology, courts and lawyers and judges, the political process. But at least Beatrice Webb and David Cecil came to the conclusion that actually this problem is either well and truly beyond us or well and truly within us. We're actually part of the problem. So let's go back to the original story, our archetypal story, the word of God in Genesis 3 about the origin of evil. And as we go through Genesis 3, and I hope you'll keep it open in front of you. It's easy to find. It's whatever, page 1, page 2. And let's see what God has to say in his word about this evil, this origin of evil in the world, and, and what explanation he gives through his word about the origin of evil. And I hope as we go through through to show you three thing, four things as we look at it. Firstly, the root of sin we're going to see. Then the essence of sin. Then we're going to see the signs of sin. And finally, the solution for sin. So let's dive into the scriptures together and, and look firstly at the root of sin. Uh, back in chapter 2, verse 16, you see um, God is speaking to Adam and Eve. And he says, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Then in Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent comes to the woman and asks her a question. He's cunning. He's more cunning and crafty than any other animal that God made. And he says, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? You see what he's doing? Then in verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. So please note firstly that the goal of the snake is not to question the existence of God. The goal of the snake is to question what? The word of God. And not just to question the word of God, but to contradict the word of God. Firstly, there's a questioning in verse 1, but then we get to outright contradiction in verse 4. God didn't say that. And so I want you to see that the snake is always at work, even as we look at the word of God now, to get us to question and to contradict the word of God, but ultimately to question the character of God. Did you notice how he did that in verse 1 with that question? Uh, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Close, but way off. What did God actually say? Chapter 2, verse 16. You may freely eat from every tree of the garden, except for one. What's Satan doing here? Well, he continues along the same vein in verse 5. Have a look. Ah, let me tell you, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. So what's he doing? What's his strategy here? He's saying you won't die. Things won't get worse. If you step outside the bounds that God has, things will get better. Your eyes will be open. You'll be free. You'll open up new horizons, new possibilities for your life. You see, what the snake is saying is you can't trust the character of God. You can't trust God's love for you, that he has your best interests at heart. He's holding back from you, which means that if you do what God says, if you bring your life into submission under him, 
you'll be missing out. Friends, this is the first FOMO, fear of missing out. If you submit your life to God, oh my goodness, your life is going to be miserable, it's going to be black and white, it's going to be boring as anything. If you submit to God and his will for your life and don't step out the bands that he has for you, because he's not a good God, he's not a loving God, he won't provide for you, he doesn't have your best interests in heart. You need to break free. To quote Elsa from Disney, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. I won't say the next bit. We've had enough of it in our household. A.W. Tozer was a great preacher in the 20th century, and he says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing. And Satan knew that so well, the snake knew that so well, that he tries to distort and destroy Adam and Eve's picture of God. Have you read Genesis 1 and 3? Have you seen how lavish and beautiful and overflowing with mighty love and power? Do you remember the streams of his love and the fruitfulness and the goodness? And he blessed them and he said it was good. It was good. It was good. And you may eat from any tree. And Satan is targeting their picture of God to destroy it. So that's his... That's his strategy. It's to contradict God's command and to question God's character. He wants you to think he's a bully. He's a tyrant. He's keeping you down. And so what that means is that you're on your own. If you want things to go well, you need to go and get it for yourself. You need to take care of number one because he's not looking out for you. You've got to look after number one. Um, Just like Taylor Swift said recently in a commencement address, you know the commencement address where you've got all the the graduates in their their garb uh, and she gets up to these university students who are graduating and she says, the scary news is this, you're on your own now. You're on your own. There's not a good, loving and gracious God who will provide for you, who will care for you who, if you come to him, will look after you. You're on your own. Never mind all the goodness that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And so it's no wonder, as people have taken on this lie, that we see them striving and straining and working themselves to death to to prove their worth, to prove their value, uh, because they have to look after themselves. They can't trust God to look after them. And so there are people who are absolutely exhausted trying to control things and get their family and their friendships and their relationships and their workplaces and their finances and everything together because they can't trust God to do any of that. They're on their own. We're eaten up with this anxiety because we don't trust the love of God to give us that sense of security and safety because you're on your own. This is the lie at the root of every human heart that God cannot be trusted. You're on your own. That's the root of sin. But what about the essence of sin? Well, At one level, you could say the essence of sin is just when God says, don't do that, and you do it, right? 
That's like a behavioral interpretation of sin. And that, that is, that would be right. We do see that. But it actually goes deeper than that, where in verse five, Satan dangles a carrot in front of them. I don't know if you saw that, where he says, if you eat of this, this tree, what will happen? Your eyes will be open, but you will be like God. You'll be like God. You'll become gods. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I find that if you know the backstory of this, this serpent, this snake, um, you, you know that he was an angel. He was one of the most glorious angels in God's army created. We see this in Isaiah, um, Isaiah chapter 14. And, and what he, this is exactly what he did. He wanted to reach out and he wanted to become like God. And then he was cast down and thrown out as a dark angel. But he was one of the most glorious, beautiful, powerful angels. It says in Isaiah 14, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. That means a Lucifer, bright one, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's what he did. It didn't work out so well for him. And so he's been trying to get humans to do that for the rest of history. And that's what he's doing here. If you eat from this truth, you will be like God. You will ascend to the tops of the clouds. You will make yourself like the Most High. And so the essence of sin is us putting ourselves in the place where only God deserves to be. We take on the prerogatives that only God should have. We make ourselves the ultimate authority over everything, which is what God should be. We make everything and everyone else orbit around our life and our priorities and our value and our, our worth when it should be us revolving about around God and who he is and his glory. In other words, sin is being self-centered and self-absorbed. Making it all about the self instead of making it about the God who made all this. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, if you were here, remember this, this Latin phrase, uh, incavates si, that, that human beings have become curved in on ourselves, which means that selfishness isn't just the motivation for doing bad. Selfishness is the motivation for doing good. I mean, do you know how much you can get out of being good? How, about being religious? About being a preacher? Do you, do you know how easy it is to, to twist all good things into the, just the pursuit of the self? And this is what Genesis 3 is saying. Friends, it's not just about being the motivation for doing bad. It's actually the motivation for doing good. What's in it for me? And actually, you see this. If you know the parable of the two lost sons, uh, you know the father and the younger one runs away. When the younger one comes to his senses, does he come to his senses when he's on top of his game and life is going incredibly well or when he's down in the dumps and it's all gone terribly? Down in the dumps, right? So do you think that part of the reason that he's turning back to God when he's down in the dumps is not so much because he thinks he's suddenly realized how amazing dad is, but because he thinks dad might be useful in helping him to give him the life that he wants. Because isn't that how he treated dad in the first place? Dad, I'm not interested in you. I just want your gifts. And now that my life has fallen apart, 
I've got something I need from you. Oh, oh, that's right, Dad. I've got something I need from you, Dad. And even turning the pursuit of God into pursuit of the self. What does he say? Listen to what he says. In the, he says, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. It's dad's job to help me. It's, it's dad's job to give me my best life now. And so even for many of us, and I know this is true for me, our religious impulse to turn to God has a whole lot of self bound up in it because God is not so much beautiful and amazing, but he's useful to get me the things that I want. Have you ever heard someone say, or have you ever said to yourself, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I do everything right, and yet God is still not answering any of my prayers? Or, or do you ever think, I mean, what use is it to be a Christian if God never answers my prayers? Do, do you hear that word use? What use is it? You see, if you obey God and you say, I'll obey you, Lord, as long as fill in the blank. Lord, I will follow you, Lord, as long as fill in the blank. Friends, whatever you have on the other side of the as long as, that's your real God. That's who you're serving. That's what you love. That's what you think you really need and you you can't live without. I can do without God, but I can't do without this. And I'm more than happy to serve God as long as he can help me to get this. Even though he loves me, even though he's the giver of all good gifts, I can't trust him. I can't come underneath him. I'll serve God as long as he gives me this. And that's my real God. We can say we're worshipping whatever God you like, but whatever comes on the other side of that as long as, that's our real God. That's whom we're really serving and who we think we really need. And so the essence of sin is sidelining God, putting ourselves in the middle, and God is just instrumental in helping me serve the self. That's the essence of sin. What about the signs of sin or the evidence of sin in the world? Well, according to this passage, it's, it's that sin is like a malignant cancer that destroys relationships. You see it in verse 7 at a horizontal level and then verse 8 at a vertical level. So firstly, our human relationships, what happens after they eat the fruit? It says they were naked and ashamed and they covered themselves. And so ever since that fateful day, from now on, humans will wear masks to hide themselves from each other and to control how people will see them. It's not safe anymore to be completely open and completely transparent. And so we put on masks to control how it is that we're seen. The the reason that they sowed fig leaves is, 
is because now they're not resting in God's love and God's blessing like streams of water pouring out on them, giving them safety and significance and security. Now they're out there on their own, insecure and anxious. And so they have to patch up their own righteousness to prove their value and to prove their significance and to prove their worth, working tirelessly and patching up these fig leaves to cover over this nagging sense of insecurity and anxiety because of being cut off now from God. And so now relationships have become just a means to the end of propping up myself. Human relationships have been destroyed, broken. But what about our relationship with God? What about the vertical? In verse 8, it says, while God is walking in the cool of the day, this amazing image of how God wants to walk with us and talk with us and be with us. But what do they do? They hide. And the reason that they hide from God is that once you stop basing your identity on his blessing and his glory, like being made in an image of God and being a mirror with the light of God's love shining on you and then bearing it, once you cut yourself off from that and you start building your identity on whatever it is, uh, your this or your that, once you start doing that, it's actually too devastating to be in the presence of someone that's so much more this and that's so much more that because you feel absolutely naked and exposed and ashamed because now you're getting all your identity and your worth from this thing and then God is like infinitely more that, whatever it is, good looking, I don't know what it is, that's my one, just kidding. Um, uh, because, because you can't stand to be in the holy presence of someone that shows you up. So, so for me, this was like, um, I remember a pastor who used to make me feel like this. Right, so so I was basing my identity on whatever you think a pastor should be, whatever I thought a pastor should be, and every time I saw this guy's posts on Facebook, I would just die a million deaths because he was so much better and so much more this and so much more that. It, to to be in his presence, to be exposed, was was just to feel naked and ashamed, and by the way, consumed with jealousy and. And envy, and so so Adam and Eve can't stand to be in the. Take that and multiply it by a million times, and you have Adam and Eve hiding away from the presence of the Almighty, the Holy, the Beautiful. That were you, were you to come into His presence, you'd be so devastated to be so exposed for what you are, for who you are, and for what you've done. It's a cheery message, isn't it? Look at the mess we're in. As a race, we doubt the goodness of God and the love of God. And so we think we're all on our own, which curves us in on ourselves. And we become radically self-centered, looking after number one. And everything becomes a means to an end, even relationships or, or, or the highest religious pursuit, like becoming a preacher, is all just a means to the end of serving the self. And our relationships become a mess because we're all just looking out for number one. Is there any way out? Is there any cure? Is there any solution? Well, they say uh, any good strategic planning process, if you've been through one of these, it's got to answer three questions, right? Where are you now? Where do you want to be in the future? And what's the third? How are we going to get there? Well, look at where God starts. 
Look at where God starts in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Do you think God doesn't know the answer? Do you think God doesn't know where he is? What's he doing? Why is he asking, where are you? He's counselling him. Instead of coming to condemn, he's coming to counsel, to get him to reflect, to get to the realisation of where he is, to come out of hiding. I never see my kids squirm like when I try to call them out and ask this kind of question. Do you know, to parents, do you know what I'm talking about? I, I never see my kids squirm like when something like this has happened and try and draw them out. That is the primal human nature of Adam and Eve, hiding, running away, going into the dark, naked and ashamed. And God says, where are you? To rephrase the investment banker, J.P. Morgan, the first step towards getting somewhere is to admit you don't like where you are. And so God asks them, where are you? And how are they going to get from here to there? Well, the answer's there in Genesis 3, verse 15. God makes a promise in Genesis 3, Verse 15, it's extraordinary how the Bible is one story. It fits together and it all holds on on this promise that God says. God says one day the woman is going to have a child and this child will rise up and he will, this child of Eve would be bruised. He would shed his blood. But in the process of shedding his blood, he would crush the snake and destroy the devil. See, this is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus comes, the last Adam, to reverse the work of the snake. Jesus comes back to crush the snake and to restore the beautiful garden forever and ever and ever. But how does he do it? Well, you see, the serpent put a lie in our hearts through a tree. And guess what? Jesus is going to take the lie out of our hearts through a tree. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden was told by God, obey me about the tree and you'll live. That's what he said to the first Adam. Did he do it? No, he didn't do it. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, in a garden also, the Garden of Gethsemane, God said to him, obey me about the tree and you'll die. What tree? The cross. The first Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you'll live. But he didn't do it. The second Adam was told, obey me about the tree, go to the cross and you'll be crushed. But it's the only way that the lie, the poisonous picture that the serpent has put in people's hearts, that venom, that picture of God, it's the only way that that venom will be removed. It's the only way that the punishment and the guilt will be taken away out of their hearts and that evil and that sin will be finally removed is if you obey me about the tree. And he did. He did obey God about the tree. Uh, George Herbert um, was a poet and he writes this poem called The Sacrifice and it imagines Jesus from the cross 
speaking to people as they pass by. He's speaking as they pass by. He's up on the cross and he has these lines in Jesus' mouth. All ye who passed by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit. Now I must climb the tree. The tree of life for all, but only for me. Do you see what he's saying in the poem? He's saying that because the tree of the cross was a tree of death for Jesus, it has become a tree of life for us. Because he took the death and took the curse. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And we get life. We get that blessing that we were made for of God's love flowing out upon us. That's the gospel in a nutshell. You see, if the essence of sin is us putting ourselves in the place of God and putting ourselves in the place where only God deserves to be, guess what the essence of salvation is? It's God humbling himself and sacrificing himself and putting himself in the place where only we deserve to be. So brothers and sisters, what comes into your head? What picture do you have when you think of God? Is it Jesus? Is it God humbled to the point of death on the cross? You see, beholding God's love for us in Christ is the only thing that will take the poisonous picture that God has planted in our hearts and replace it with his goodness, his grace and his love. And so I want to say to you this morning that Jesus stands ready if you open your heart today, to remove the lie from any dark crevice in your heart and to replace it with his love, his goodness and his grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us such a powerful story about the origin of evil. Thank you, Lord, that you came to them not to condemn, but to counsel and to draw them out. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing. And being found in human likeness, you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, help us to see your great love for us in Christ, that you might remove the lie of the poisonous snake, that we don't have to strive, we don't have to run around to prove our value and our worth because we're not on our own. You're with us and you love us. Help us to trust in your love and to come to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.